We're going to be looking in Romans chapter 8 tonight. It's been a few weeks, uh, but tonight our message is going to be called The Sense in Suffering. Let's all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's Word, Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. And not only that, but we also who had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And may God bless the reading of his word tonight as my prayer. You may be seated. We've been looking at Romans chapter 8 under the heading of making the Christian life work. If we could go back to the beginning of the book of Romans, we'd see that he started out by uh, striking some powerful blows against humanity and establishing the universal guilt of mankind before God in the first three chapters, concluding with that pivotal verse, Romans 3.21, that we all know so well, and that is, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If the passage had stopped there, it would be a sad Sad indictment, but thank God for the next verse. Uh, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Yeah, there is salvation, justification available to us who are sinners. The universal guilt of humanity. <clears throat> he again sets that against that glorious truth of justification by faith. You play that out in Romans 4 and 5. And since he talks about how that we are justified by faith and without the works of the law, he then would anticipate their arguments. Well, if that's the truth, if God has declared us to be righteous in Christ on the basis of our faith and not on the basis of our works, if we have been delivered from the condemnation of the law, the law that was called the law of sin and of death, well, surely you're just telling people they can be saved and then just sin all they want to. No, Paul addressed that in Romans 6. God forbid, he said. God forbid. And he went on and talked about how that we that are dead to sin should not live any longer therein and established then that the law brought an increased awareness of our sinfulness, a consciousness of sin. Which brought in that great chapter, Romans chapter 7, that ended up with him saying, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So with the, with the mind, he said, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. So he talked about that battle that was going on between the flesh and the spirit so that we cannot do what we want because the flesh lusts against the spirit. That is, the spiritual side of us can't do what it wants to do because the flesh won't let it. And the flesh side of us won't do what it wants to do because the spiritual side of us won't let it have its way either. The constant tension then 
between us as a people of God. And then chapter 8, which brings to us the fact that it is the magnificent power of the Holy Spirit of God living in us, changing us, working in us, all those incredible truths that he has spoken to us about in Romans 8 to give us that needed dynamic to free us up to live as God intends for us to live. But still, still, there's something going on in us and around us. We see it all around us. We see it in us. We see it on us. Something dark and deadly and decaying and declining. Something that hurts. Something that bothers us. And this can be identified with one word, suffering, suffering, suffering. So that as the people of God, though we have been delivered from our sins and know the mighty spirit of God lives inside of us, in us, on us, around us, everywhere we look, Suffering. The great evangelist Junior Hill once said that if you preach to a hurting people, you will never lack for an audience. That's true. Not one purpose person in this building tonight can say that you are immune from suffering because we all have it. Of all kinds, whether it's mental, emotional, physical, we all have it. Now, our text tonight is going to discuss the fact that this suffering has a purpose. And evangelist Ron Dunn was fond of saying, there's no, for the Christian, there's no such thing as meaningless suffering. That suffering that we experience as a people of God has a purpose. There is, as I call the message tonight, there is sense in our suffering. Now... Some of you might be familiar with David Ring. David Ring was a very popular evangelist a few years ago. He still is, still preaching as far as I know. I don't know. I don't, haven't kept up with him. I've kind of lost track of him. But he was born with cerebral palsy. Uh, it affected his ability to speak and, and other things about him. But um, um, one of the things that has stood out over the years that I heard him say is he said, don't ask why, but ask what. And uh, he was making a big deal out of the fact that God seldom answers the why question. I bring that up for you tonight only to tell you that even if God does answer the why question, (laughs) it doesn't really help us a whole lot. And I understand that. So when I'm talking to you tonight about there being sense in suffering, you're still going to be suffering. And you might think that, well, rather than knowing why this is happening or how this is working out or or what God is using this to do, you know, I'd rather him just take it away. No. There is sense in the suffering. And he doesn't leave us to wonder about it. It is spelled out for us very plainly in our text And we'll follow it out under three general headings. And the first part is the gloomy part. And that is what he speaks of in verse 18, the sufferings of this present time. 
the sufferings of this present time. Our Lord Jesus Christ promised us that in this world you will have tribulation, not might. You will have tribulation. There is suffering to be experienced in this present time. Solomon wrote a whole book about life under the sun. Uh, that's the book of Ecclesiastes. To read this book is to consider then uh, the perspective of a person who would live life without God. It's, it's about as close to a humanistic book as the Holy Spirit inspired to be written. And as Solomon looks then at, his, at life under the sun, just taking a horizontal look without looking above the sun to God, no, just under the sun. And what did he see? It's a gloomy picture Ecclesiastes 2.14, the wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceive that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, as it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever. Since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die? As a fool. Therefore I hated life. Because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me. For all is vanity and grasping for wind. And I hated all my labor in which I toiled under the sun. Because I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled. And in which I've shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vanity. Uh, Solomon had the intelligence and the resources to indulge all of the desires that he might have. To experience all that life had to offer under the sun. And yet he began that book by saying, vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It is all empty. It is like grasping for wind. You get a handful of air and what have you got? There's nothing to it. He says both the wise man and the fool will die. Neither of them will be remembered he gave himself to the accumulation of vast wealth, and yet he would leave it all behind to someone else with no control over what they were going to do with it. Vanity. Meaningless. It is a very humanistic mindset in this degree, to this degree, because humanism looks at life with all of its fleeting joy, all of its lingering suffering, all of its pain, turmoil, and grief, and concludes there is no meaning to life. That's humanism. Life has no ultimate meaning. Have fun while it lasts, endure the rest, and there is no ultimate meaning to it at all. Now, that's what Solomon concluded. It's meaningless. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. It's meaningless. Now, is that a gloomy picture? I once listened to a, a debate with a humanist where he was arguing with a straight face and with great, great diligence that life has no meaning, that there, we live till we die and that's it, that your suffering has no purpose, that there's nothing to it except to live and to die. He ridiculed the message of the Christian faith and the hope that we have in Jesus Christ he concluded that that kind of message is for the weak, those who need an emotional crutch, 
those who are unable or unwilling to take personal responsibility for what happens to them. Uh, it, it just uh, for those who are weak because they can't, they can't just accept that life just happens, then you die. <laughs> oh, I don't have enough faith to be that kind of person. I, I don't have enough faith to be that, have that kind of belief system. I'm glad tonight I can stand before you and say that life in Christ does have meaning. It does. I don't, but I don't, and by saying that, call on you or myself to ignore the gloominess of this world. Suffering is real. Pain is a part of life. And the Bible does not act as if it isn't true. God did not promise that our faith in Jesus Christ would deliver us from the sufferings of the world. Just the opposite. That's John 16, 33, where Jesus said, in the world, you'll have tribulation. Now, I don't mean to be a killjoy for you tonight, but I can tell all you young folks here, you've got some tough times ahead. You have. For those of us like me who had the majority of their life behind them at this point, we might think, well, it's, uh, I'm probably not going to live to see all of that. We might all be surprised. There's some tough times ahead. And so there is a gloomy message here when he talks about this present suffering. And then he talks about the groanings. And actually there are three times in this passage that the word groan is used. In verse 19, there's the groaning of the creation. For the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation, there it is, groans and labors with birth pangs until now. You see, this creation did not begin as it is now. Uh, that's something that all the climate experts and all of the scientific folks in the world today who just... Uh, have their own theories and their own ideas about how everything got started and how it all is, they, they never even figured this in. The creation is dramatically different now than what God made it to be. Dramatically different. God created in perfection and in sinlessness. But mankind sinned and all the creation then came under the power of sin. And Paul in this passage tells us that because of that, the whole creation is groaning. Sometimes uh, we can almost hear the sound of it. The storms, the tornadoes, the hurricanes, the flood, the earthquakes, the volcanoes, the plagues, the droughts, the famines. The list goes on and on. Through the miracle of our modern communication abilities, we have watched the carnage so long around the world that we're almost immune to it. We can see hundreds and thousands of people lying dead and unmourned and unburied. Kind of shrug and maybe hit the channel button. Go on and watch I Love Lucy. Or, <laughs> gosh, where did that come from? <laughs> I hadn't watched I Love Lucy in years. <clears throat> thousands upon thousands. Who knows how many die all the time. We might step out on a dark night and think everything seems so clear and peaceful. 
But in fact, a horrible warfare is going on all around us. This creature is stalking creature. The bloody battlefield affects everything from insects to humanity. One creature lives off the death of another. One preys upon another. We might think of the creation then as a mindless entity, and it is. Yet Jesus said that if these would stop shouting his glory, the rocks themselves would cry out. Jesus spoke to the winds and the waves like you and I would rebuke a restless child and said to them, peace be still, and they obeyed because the creation obeyed the voice of its master. How did it hear its voice? I don't know, but it did. I can't explain it. But This Bible tells us in this passage that the creation groans so that in this groaning it is in fact feeling the bondage of of corruption and waiting for the glorious liberty of the children of God. You see, it was God's created order, humanity, man, that sinned and subjected all of the creation to the bondage of sin. So when mankind then is delivered from the bondage of sin, the creation will be delivered from that bondage as well. So it waits. And it groans. There's also not only the groaning of the creation, but the groaning of the Christian. Verse 23, not only that, but we also had the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. For we're saved in this hope, but hope that's seen is not hope. For what does one hope? still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. We wait then for the redemption of the body and we groan within ourselves. You see, we've not received our redemption yet. Not the redemption of the body. And because of that, we groan. Several reasons for this groaning that I want to point out to you tonight. We groan because we live in a world that is cursed. Everything about us, everything around us is cursed. When a tornado hits and it hits on one side of a street and it doesn't hit on the other, do you look at that person over there and say, well, were they a bad sinner? I wonder what they've been doing so wrong that it hit them and didn't hit this person. Uh, Well, we don't really think that, or at least we shouldn't have, because Jesus addressed all that in Luke chapter 13 when he talked about the falling of the Tower of Siloam fell, uh, or when the Tower of Siloam fell, rather, and uh, slew 18 people. 18 people died when that tower fell. And Jesus said, were these people sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? Did did this uh, tower in Siloam fall upon them because they were so bad? And he said, no. But he said, I say unto you, except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You see, if God was going to start uh, uh, sending out judgment on sinners, it would fall on all of us, wouldn't it? And so he says, what's he saying to us? Well, towers fall. Tornadoes come. Floods rise. Cancer happens. We live in a cursed world. And these things happen. And they happen to Christians just like they happen to everybody else. And so we we live in a cursed world. We live in a world that's filled with other sinners. Sinners who are sinners by nature and by practice. So that it's not only nature and natural phenomenon that cause suffering, but the human race inflicts hurt on itself. There is an epidemic of the results of sin. 
Does it seem like it's getting worse? Is it just our communication ability that lets us hear about more killings, more murders, more shootings, more death, more violence, more crime? Is it just our communication skills? I don't think so. Part of the problem is that the world has more sinners in it now than it's ever had before. Our population has exploded. There's so many people in the world. And those people are all sinners. How many of them? All of them. <laughs> all of them. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And without the Holy Spirit living in them, without the power of the gospel changing them, without them experiencing the new life that is available to us in Jesus Christ, then they are in the bondage of sin, the bondage of corruption. And sometimes as God's people, yes, we suffer because we live in a world full of sinners. And sometimes it comes to us. We live in bodies that have a curse. Our bodies are under the power of the curse. And uh, you were born, and I was born out of a polluted gene pool. And sooner or later, that means our bodies are going to fail. And the travail and suffering which come from the failure of the human body causes us to moan, to groan. And we suffer. We suffer sometimes because we choose to do wrong. Even as believers, we can bring suffering upon ourselves. We're sorry, we're repentant of it, we're forgiven for it. And if we're not careful, maybe we'll do it again. But some, if not a lot of our suffering is self-inflicted. Sometimes we make lifestyle choices early on in life and we pay for them later in life. My doctor told me many years ago is that after the age of 50, our lifestyle starts to, ch- to show up on us. He was right. He was right. It doesn't make me like what he said anymore. But he was right. We could perhaps think of a lot more reasons why that we as Christians suffer, but all of them can be summed up with that simple expression. We have not experienced the redemption of the body yet. One day we will. One day this robe of flesh will drop and rise and seize the everlasting prize. One day there'll be a life with no suffering, sickness, or death. One day there'll be a time where there is no more tears but only happiness and joy. One day there will be a time when our parting will be past us so that we will only eternally be together with one another and with the Lord. One day this will happen, but it hasn't happened yet. And because of that, we still groan. We don't want much, really. We, were, we, want, we want joy with no sorrow. We want life without suffering. We want sickness. We don't want sickness. We don't want death. We, we're looking for a place where everybody does what's right, where nobody does wrong. Uh, we long for a place where we're never going to be hurt again, where there'll be no tears. We don't want much, do we? We want heaven. That's what we want. But we want heaven on this earth, and folks, it can't happen. This earth is cursed. It is doomed for destruction and cannot be saved. This creation must die, and it will be recreated then in glory. So there's the groaning of 
the creation. There's the groaning of the Christian. There's also then the groaning of the comforter, the Holy Spirit mentioned in this passage. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Holy Spirit groans within us. We're not left to groan alone. And all of our trials and torments and sorrow and suffering, and yes, even in our sins, the things that cause us to groan cause him to groan with us. There are times when our pain may seem so intense that it's difficult for us to even pray. Multitudes of times when we don't know what to pray for. Sometimes we're almost ashamed to pray again and ask God to forgive us for the same thing that for the umpteen zillionth time. When the pain is too deep for us to pray, the Holy Spirit groans within us. We wouldn't believe that if not for the fact that Paul told us in Romans chapter 8. That the Holy Spirit groans within us. You see, he knows both the mind of God and the mind of man. He knows what we want to do. And what we weren't capable of doing. He knows what we planned to do. But we didn't get done. He knows our minds. That's why when Paul said Romans chapter 7 verse 25. With the mind I myself serve the law of God. But with the flesh the law of sin. The Holy Spirit knows that. And he feels our pain. He groans. When our mind is pulling us in one direction. And the flesh in another. Aren't you glad the Holy Spirit groans with us? But that's not all he does. But he makes intercession for us in according to the will of God. Not the will of Richard. Not your will. But the will of God. So that even when we can't say it, the Holy Spirit does. Not my will, but thine be done. Yeah. The gloom of this world then leads to groaning of the creation of Christians and of the Holy Spirit. You say, but Brother Richard, I, I don't understand. What does all this have to do then with the sense of suffering, the purpose of it? Well, verse 19 says, The earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the Son of God. Verse 23, And not only they, but we also had the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Throughout these passages, the groanings, are pictured within the imagery are of a woman giving birth. The birth pangs of labor. Birth pangs do not make a baby. Birth pains do not make a baby. Birth pangs deliver a baby. But they don't make a baby. What this passage is telling us is that the baby that is being delivered by these labor pains, which is what our groaning and our suffering is, is the glorious liberty of the children of God. The birth pains, our suffering, do not produce the glory, but it does bring the glory to pass. 
Now, in modern culture, we have that marvelous thing called a C-section, and I've always heard you could take any illustration and project it into the realm of absurdity, but uh, the C-section, you know, they just put you to sleep and you wake up with a baby, and I, I, that, I guess that's how it works, kind of. Uh, I know that's an oversimplification. You say, well, we don't always have to have birth pains. I, I know that, but, but when this book was written, that really wasn't a possibility. And uh, there was really no way to get a baby except by the birth pains, the suffering. Are you seeing the point yet tonight? See, that there's a reason for our suffering. There, uh, there, there's a purpose in it. Uh, there's, there's sense in it. Uh, God did not take away our ability to suffer when he saved us. Far from it. He promised us that in this world, our suffering was going to continue and even increase. But what he did tell us is that our suffering has a purpose. It is going to bring forth the glory, the glorious liberty of the children of God. Every birth pain is one step closer to our redemption. It's one that's behind us. And it's brought us one step closer to the glory that will be revealed. And the great thing is, Paul said, that the glory that shall be revealed in us. And we're going to look at that glory and say, man, it's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth thinking about all that suffering. The old hymn writer said it this way. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. I don't think any of us are going to be walking around on streets of gold saying, man, you should have seen what I had to go through to get here. No, uh -uh. I don't think that's going to happen. Now, from the humanist perspective, they say that life is meaning and meaningless and therefore suffering is meaningless. There's nothing that doesn't do anything. But God says that the suffering endured by Christians is suffering that brings forth the glory in us because that we're the children of God. We've got some of that to go through, but everyone is like a birth pain. It gets us that much closer to the time of our delivery. And because of that, he says, there is an earnest expectation. You know, the word expectation comes from a word which means to stretch the neck. To reach up and, and look. It's like you look in that way and look in that way. Look in this way. Stretching up. We're looking for something. What are we looking for? Our redemption. <laughs> our redemption. See, it wasn't just by coincidence that we were told to lift up our heads for your redemption draws nigh. Yeah. That something is the glorious manifestation of the children of God, the redemption of the body. And so in this passage, we're given how that the, the truth of how the Holy Spirit is working in us to change us, to recreate us, to help us have a new dynamic then by which we can overcome the power of sin. And then the Holy Spirit is working in us interceding for us, groaning right along with us as we anticipate our redemption. 
And I'm sure since I preached this sermon to you tonight, when all of y'all wake up in the morning like I do, and you turn over in the bed and you hit the floor, and you're saying, oh, oh, I know that y'all are all going to think, hallelujah, praise the Lord, that's one more groaning behind me, and I'm one more step closer to the glory of God. Well, you can. <laughs> I'll pray for you and y'all pray for me. We can because that is the truth. We've got some suffering to live through, but there's glory to come.